Hello and welcome to this week's Garden Pod. Uh, this week we are at the EYC, which stands for our Early Year Centre. So this is for our primarily three to five-year-olds, although we do have some kids that are under three there. The EYC is a really exciting place. It's an inspiring place and we had a chance to talk to three members of the EYC staff around learning in the EYC, what it looks like and why it's rigorous. Um, so we have a play-based curriculum there. Um, but in this discussion, we really get to explore the rigour behind the play and why that's, a, um, why that's a really wonderful learning experience for these young people and the sort of methodology behind what they do at the EYC and maybe addressing some misconceptions around sort of play-based learning for that age group. So um, I'm going to let the experts tell you about it. I hope you enjoy and please share, pass on, review, etc. All of those things that help us to grow and develop. All right. We give you EYC. Okay, here we go. We're live in our early years centre, which is commonly known as the EYC. Um, I'm sitting with three early years teacher teachers. Sorry, we've got Natalie, Brooke, and Carlotta. So we're just going to go around the room and get you just to introduce yourselves briefly and uh, tell us a bit about what you do. So, Brooke, should we start with you? Uh, I'm Brooke. I'm originally from Sydney uh, and I've been in Malaysia for seven years. I'm currently teaching in the nursery uh, and supporting all three classes. Fantastic. I'm Natalie. I'm reception year leader, although I work in nursery as well. I've been here since August. I am Carlotta. I am a reception teacher and the phonics leader and uh, yeah, I've been here since August. Okay, great. So what we're going to be talking about today is we've kind of titled this The Rigor Behind the Play. Um, so that's our early years centre, this is from age uh, three or the year they're turning three, so we might have some two-year-olds, that's correct, um, up until year, uh, they're five years old. What they do here, and we, we've got a kind of a play-based curriculum or a continuous provision, would that be the, the right phrase to use? Yeah, part yeah. of it is continuous provision. Continuous provision. So maybe we'll drill down into those sort of terms just to get the context right. So um, Natalie, maybe you want to start us off, what do we mean by a play-based uh, approach? So the, the environment acts as a second teacher in early years because the children are learning through play, the teachers will set up the environment in a way that's interesting for the children and matches their development but also challenges them at the same time. Right, fantastic. Um, is now a good time to bring continuous provision or is that, should we talk about that later? We can talk about that now. Yeah, okay, go for it. So that's all the resources that are set up in a way that the children can use independently but will challenge them through their independent play. So it may be playing independently, it may be playing within a group or with a pair, but the resources that are there will lead the learning. The children will use them in a way that is interesting to them. Some of our continuous provision is a lot more open-ended, which provides a lot more opportunity for the play, for the children to use it in a way that they would like to use it. But the teacher has to cleverly, purposefully plan for those yeah. resources so that the child is still learning even when the adult's not there facilitating. Okay. So I'm trained as a secondary teacher originally. I spent quite a lot of time across the whole range now, but definitely my sort of default tends to fall towards secondary. So my daughter, my youngest daughter's here, my eldest daughter came through the early years centre. Um, and what I might see when I walk into a classroom is lots of different areas set up. Um, for different kinds of things and the, the kids really have a lot of freedom to move around and, and try and use and play with different things. Natalie, you said that, that was, there's, there's a sort of method behind that. So maybe we should explore that a little bit in, in terms of how that setup happens. 
are we just putting structures in for them to walk in and, and play around, or is there is there more to it than that? So, um, we spend uh, quite a, a, a long period of time at the beginning of the year getting to know the children to basically know what level they are at in their development. Mm. We're not talking about academic level, but developmental level. Um, what we do is, based on those observations, we looked at our environment, and that's when we set up their resources so that they can be accesses, accessed sorry, independently mm. and challenging all levels. Um, all of those resources and continuous provision, as Natalie says, um, are there for children to access it within other children. Mm. Um, that encourages them, encourages them to take risks, to um, feel confident in their own abilities. And also, as they are um, accessing it within a, a, a comfort, the comfort of their peers, encourages language as well, communication and language, which is a very important area. Um, in, in the early years. Okay, can I stop and just drill down into yes. There's a couple of things there that I think are important to explore. Mm -hmm. um, so one of them is this idea that the, this, I'm going to say stations just because it makes sense mm -hmm. in my head, the, kind of, the stations or the areas that are set up are very much done so with the needs of the children who might go there in mind. So could we have maybe an example of, of, of an area that might get set up and what needs that might address? Uh, so... Uh, an example might be the creative area, uh, and in that we have mark making, and we have um, different creative things for the children to um, to use to create anything they can imagine. There's painting, there's collage. Uh, so we might see a child who, um, I'm trying to think of an example. So a child who ha um, is showing lots of interest in. Um, gross motor skills but yep. they're not really focusing so much on their fine motor so we might look at that child and observe observe them in the learning environment see what interests them and then try to target those interests into that creative area to try and redirect them in there to then focus on building those fine motor skills and building their creativity and working on on those things so it's almost a bespoke environment mm. for them yeah it's very much children. observation based yeah it's very much we're constantly observing and watching what children are doing and what they're bringing to the environment and then facilitating their learning by expanding on those interests. Okay. Yeah. Can I tag on to that? <laughs> so um, within our curriculum there's actually 17 areas of learning. So as Carlotta said, it's not just academic, there's all the developmental side. So there's the physical development, managing feelings and behaviour, lots of communication strands. And we need to make sure that children are developing in all of those 17 areas plus meeting the characteristics of learning at the same time, which very much links to the GIS learner skills. Mm -hmm. So when we're observing the children, as um, similar to Brooke's example, we'll find something that the children are interested in, tag that along with something that they need to develop, and try and then create something that will help them to develop with their need, but to their interest. Yeah. So for example, if you have a child who's in the role-play house all the time <coughs> and enjoys pretending that there's someone's birthday but they never necessarily go into a malleable area and develop their fine motor, we might then in the Play-Doh area set up a pretend birthday party and have candles and have high development tools where the children have to really use their fine motor skills mm. to try and get that child to that area which will then develop those skills. Mm. So the observation literally goes down to that detail. Uh, this yeah. kid is really obviously interested in this particular type of play, let's manipulate that 
to focus on a developmental area which we've seen is required through observation, yeah. which is incredible, really, and it shows the, I think certainly when I've been down here and the influence it's had on me taking things up further up the school, that observation, I think, is something that don't, so many teachers, and I guess many, many parents, don't really understand about what goes into that observation, so... Do you target kids on like a daily basis to watch them in detail? How does that work? Absolutely. So um, we've got obviously more than one teacher, more than one adult within the unit. And uh, in some cases we will have um, adults assigned to a particular area and other adults will float away and we'll make sure that we are collecting enough evidence. Uh, but on top of that we have a system here that we call focused children. So we will pick three, four children a week that we are going to uh, basically follow mm. and focus, uh, have focus observations of those particular children. On top of the daily observations that we gather from other children, we will have a few children that we focus on so that we make sure that we are not missing out yeah. on anything that is happening. Okay, so with those focus children, you said there were 17? Areas of learning. 17 Absolutely. areas of learning. So is it so much that I'm, uh, this is probably a bit naive, but do I have like a checklist of those 17 areas and I'm trying to map the observation against, okay, they're making good progress in this area, but there's nothing going on here, so therefore I'm going to use that as my driver for um, the next day's planning or next week's planning? I'd say more than a checklist. Mm -hmm. We we observe the child, we have a narrative of the observation, and then we will link it yeah. to those 17 areas of learning. Now, observations here, go; they are very, very cross-curricular. They go from one area to the other, and in one observation, you may actually uh, be able to tag all of the areas, if not most of the areas, and from those um, areas and those, let's see, let, let's say, as you've said, uh, checklist, yeah. um, we will develop and we will plan next steps yeah. so that we move on to the next thing. So I immediately regret using the word checklist because Natalie <laughs> sitting in front of me has got this document <laughs> which comes from the uh, early foundation stage development matters mm -hmm. um, stuff that comes out of the UK. Yeah. Do you want maybe can you talk us a bit about what that is, where that's come from? Yeah, so this has all the seventeen areas of learning, which each one is split into an age band. So it starts right from zero when the, when the children are born and they go into a nursery, all the way up to age five when they finish their journey through the early years. The end result is an early learning goal, which is really where we're trying to get the children to through their early years journey. Um, and on the way there are checkpoints. So we have um, different age bands, which are split into months. And then within those age bands, there's various statements linked to the learning and they're developmental. So from zero to five years in moving and handling, which is all about physical development, you'll see ages and stages, so it's developmentally appropriate as they get older. Mm. Um, as we know, though, in early years, children develop at their own rate. That's why the ages and stages actually overlap. Okay. So you wouldn't necessarily say, if you are two and a half, you are here. If you're three, you're here. That might overlap because they develop differently. Mm. However, we would expect by the end of their early years journey, before going to year one, that they've reached the early learning goal. Okay. And, and it can happen that a child may develop very quickly in one area and slightly slow, as, as slowly in, in another area and it, it is fine and we try to, to, to uh, give that message to, to yeah, make mm. parents understand that that is how it works. Children develop at their own pace 
and it is okay. And part of the way that this curriculum has been created is those 17 areas have been chosen because they're all so important to happen alongside each other. So you really have to see them almost like cogs in a network that for each cog to turn, they all need to be turning. So we don't push that academic because you need all that lovely primaries to develop first. You need the children to be able to um, challenge themselves, problem solve, persevere for that learning to then happen. So we really try and get all the development to come together. So this is called Development Matters, which seems a wholly appropriate title. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, because this is sort of the foundations of learning. Which is why learning. we're called the foundations then. Yeah. You, you can't build some of those things that we might expect to see later on in, in a student's life without having some of these absolutely sort of key things in place. Definitely. Can you give us a few examples of the seven, we won't go through all, through all 17, but perhaps you can give us a few examples from the 17 in the different areas and what kinds of things that you look for? Um, well, as Carlotta said, a lot of them are cross-curricular, so I think one of the most important ones that does link to a lot of others is communication and language. Mm. So within that strand we have listening and attention, understanding and speaking so that a lot of it comes through um, our focus story times children listening to each other demonstrating understanding through role play perhaps speaking we tend to take direct quotes of children and then we will use that to look at their sentence structure looking at the kind of vocabulary they're using and then through our facilitating and our questioning and our modeling we'll then build on that and that links, Carter, sorry, to what you were talking about, making sure that they're working together in groups and you're observing them with other children. Absolutely. So it's, kind of real, it's a real situation yeah. that you're looking at. Yes, yeah. and, and we actually have a very, very strong focus here on the prime areas because we have a, a, a very high volume of EAL students. Um, if we don't develop those three prime areas that Natalie was talking about, communication and language, physical development and personal, social and emotional development, we will not be able to, to develop into the specific areas, which are literacy, maths and, and understanding of the world and um, um, expressive arts yeah. and, and, and design. So um, if, if you have a chance and you walk around the EYC, you will see lots of communication happening, lots of children taking ownership of what they are doing. Um, you'll see the adult taking a sort of secondary role where, yes, we are facilitating and there is lots of thinking behind, but we want the children to be able to feel confident to take ownership of everything that they do. There's nothing better than seeing an EAL children explaining himself or herself um, through using broken English and lots of non-verbal communication and, and by the end of the year then you hear them making full sentences and it, it, it is it and That's is a sign true. of safety and confidence, isn't it? Mm. I'm in this environment, I'm feeling safe, I'm happy to try new things and different mm. things. And Yes. That's absolutely it, and that goes back to the continuous provision we talked about at the beginning, that part of that setup is really encouraging and enabling children to be independent and make their own independent choices in their learning. What resources do I need for this? What's my idea? Where do I need to go for that? So they're not coming to adults all the time. They can make those choices themselves. Okay. And, and if we link this to the play-based approach... <clears throat> Um, obviously, we know that if we are instructing the children and, and keeping them in a very tight zone, these three areas will not develop. We may get a lot of other things going on, 
but these three areas will not develop and that will stop them from achieving highly in the future. Yeah. We are sitting in the EYC, so there's some kids background noise, it's great, it's what we want, it's a real life place, so we can't worry too much about it. Um, right, good, okay, so let's just try and join these dots up then. So, um, the play-based stuff, I think the fundamental message here is it's not just playing, is it? That's a very naive and um, sort of surface level view. So if you were to walk in and see kids running around and, well actually they don't run around too much here, but they're in, in the playroom moving around, talking to each other, going from one station to another, there's quite a lot of, there's an awful lot of method behind that and planning behind that, which is then informing the next stage, stage of planning. Okay, so let's, um, let's address some misconceptions or some perceived sort of concerns that may that may arise from parent base, especially um, outside of a culture that is used to having schools uh, that have this kind of provision. So something that springs immediately to mind would be, okay, when are they going to learn, start learning to read and write? Uh, you know, if they're playing all the time, how are they going to do that? Well, this is a question that we get asked very often, um, particularly from um, nursery. When are they going to learn how to read and write, or when are they going to learn the letters? And um, we we always talk to them about phonics. And when we say phonics, um, some parents or some adults may think we are talking about reading and writing. Yes, that will be the end result of a phonics program. But um, actually, phonics starts from phase one, and that phase one is all about environmental science being able to hear a bird and being able to identify, oh, I just heard a bird. Mm. So when you say phase one, what do you mean? So um, the phonics that we follow here is divided into different phases. Um, phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four, phase five, until they come out from the phonics program and they learn signs, which is what you probably would mm. call letters, but we call signs. Um, in a, in, a, in a progression. Mm. So they progress through the different um, signs and they learn how to put them together and then read and write. Um, but it's very important that we go back to phase one and children first identify what signs are in the environment. Once they are able to identify all of, the, all of those environmental signs and being able to hear that there is rhyme and there is rhythm and and they understand that, then they might they move on to oral blending where, where we say, maybe we ask them to identify what's the first sound in cat and they might be able to say it's k. Then they are able to, maybe you tell them, oh, I say cat, and they will be able to oral blend them, oh, I said cat, but they still don't know the, the graphic representation of, of the sound. Um, and they move on through the whole phonics program like that. But without that happening, the reading and writing will not be um, will not be successful in the sense that you are not enabling them to then, when they encounter a word that they don't know, mm. they can actually use the strategies as in segmenting the signs to be able to 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 read it. So um, would it be too simplistic to say that this is designed to set them up for long-term success mm. rather than short-term test? Which, and, and, which we often see in, in different types of groups. That is absolutely right. We, so 
we are teaching them how to read and write not by instructing them but by giving them the tools to be able to decode the world around them, if that makes sense. I think it's really important to say as well that everything you just explained about phase one, not a single part of it is picking up a pencil and actually mm -hmm. writing. That doesn't come until partway through phase two. Mm -hmm. So down in nursery where they're doing all this great work, Brooke, I know you've got a little um, literacy focus that you have going each day and you identify different children for that that all of this distinguishing sounds, breaking up words, playing with rhyme, alongside that, the nursery team are working really hard on developing fine motor skills so that when the children do come up to their developmentally appropriate stage to do that, they will have all of that sound knowledge, they'll be able to hear sounds in words, but they'll also be able to pick up pencils at the same time. So we're not setting them up for failure in one way or another, they're ready all round to then go into that reading and writing. Because that can become quite a stressful... Well, mm. quite a very stressful situation for yeah. a sort of four-year-old to, to be asked to make the shapes and just can't hold the pencil in the right Absolutely, way. and we know as adults that if we're asked to do something that we know we're not very good at, we're not going to want to do it. Mm. So there's no point asking a child or forcing them to do this until they're ready. Mm. And, and it is, it's very interesting that you used it, actually you used the word shape. Mm. Because uh, reading and writing, obviously, is just recognising shapes. Um, and then going back to um, some parents saying, but my child knows all of their letters. Mm. Why cannot he read or why cannot she read? And it's, it's, it, this might be a very silly or simple example, but I see this and I'm looking at a table and I know it's a table, it's a shape, that I've got a concept, it's a table. Now, I may recognise A as a letter. I know that it's A, but actually it doesn't sound like mm. A, yeah. which is what we would be looking for. So they are completely different concepts, and, and we actually have here a very strong belief that if we teach sounds and then the, the graphic representation, that's all developmental. Yeah. And, and Natalie was talking about picking up a pencil that is not... Um, immediately related to being able to read and write is, is a prime area which is physical development. Can I make a picture? Mm. If I can make a picture and I'm drawing a, quite a detailed picture, I'm probably ready to write. But if I'm still not drawing very detailed pictures, don't push me to write because mm. I cannot write yet. You're I'm not likely, ready. You're more likely to and this is intuitive, not just for an adult, it's, it's obvious just an observation, you're much more likely to develop those fine motor skills drawing something you really want to draw, yeah. uh, or in an area that's kind of fun for you than you are copying out. But it, it also comes down to, um, actually Emily and Michaela did a fantastic parent workshop this morning on this, on about mark making and physical development, that before it even goes to drawing, you need all that physical strength in your core, from your core you need the physical strength mm. in your shoulder, from there you need to build up the strength in your elbow, from there your wrist, and then right down to your fingers, and there's so many fun, big, gross motor activities that those children could be doing to build all of that before they go down into the detailed drawings. Yeah. Brooke, I want to jump in because we mentioned a literacy focus group. Yeah, so right? we so we in nursery we are targeting phonics and early sounds and mark making and learning to write across the whole unit. So it's something that we're trying to implement in all of the areas. We're very much 
focusing on all the children and seeing where they're at and then reflecting on their learning and reflecting on the spaces that we have set up for them and the continuous provisions and what they're bringing to the environment and then we're looking at ways that we can help them to, um, to meet those phase one targets. So across the unit um, we do like little small group experiences where we'll have like little phonics phase one kind of experiences for the children to engage in um, and uh, we're tar very much targeting where that child's at though so okay. it's it's all about um, where where their learning journey is yeah. at really um, and but then seeing um, tracking that and how they're developing it and mm. then bringing new experiences in to help them. I think this is what I'm always in massive admiration of seeing early years practitioners and how well they know mm. each of those kids. Mm. They're good at this, they're not so good at that, I'm planning for this and tell almost anything and everything about that child yeah. in a way that I think further up the school we can could, we could learn. That's and half of that process. is observation, isn't it? The way yeah. you guys just watch the kids and don't necessarily feel that you have to jump in at every possible moment yeah. and in order to get that real picture that you, you watch them and then see what's going on. It's also a process of reflection as a team and as an individual teacher you're constantly reflecting on what you're giving to the environment and what the children are doing mm -hmm. uh, and the learning that's happening and what those observations mean and yeah. So, so you will come together as a team yeah, every, day. Day. every day. Every day. Every day. We'll and reflect make a plan on for what's yeah. been going on today, who needs yeah. what. Let's have a look at tomorrow. And we also look at, um, at the provision that we have around and why are they accessing this area in this way or why aren't, these, uh, or why aren't they accessing this area? So uh, when we talk about areas and provision, it's in constant change. So it changes almost on a daily basis. Which is a tough job. Mm. <laughs> it's a, it sounds like a, but I find it really interesting because if you if you were to look at our weekly planning, we might have planned the first one or two days in a week, but the rest of the week is pretty blank, apart from you know our talk for writing or our phonics, which is a bit more rigorous. But because we do plan day by day based on the observations we've seen that day, and we're always thinking about what the children are interested in and where their development goes. That's why we're the annoying people at the weekend out with friends buying things that we see when we're out shopping because we know the children would like those and that it'll help with their development. Yeah. And obviously another key thing that goes on at the EYC should be going on in any early years centre is that we are extremely flexible. So on Friday I might have observed my class really into, let's say, dinosaurs. So I spend my weekend planning all sorts of things that will happen around dinosaurs. So understanding of the world, literacy, maths, mark making, mm. and then I come back on Monday I'm super excited about the dinosaurs. They are not in, into dinosaurs anymore. <laughs> Scrap the dinosaurs and observe again. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're willing and, and happy to... Have to be it like has yeah. to be. Yeah. It has to be like that. Otherwise, obviously, this play-based approach mm. does not work yeah. because you will have a bunch of very bored children who mm. will just not engage. Mm. The children really are the vehicle to steer the learning when it comes to LES. Yeah. And we just have to follow them and go with what they want. That's why topic boxes are a godsend, because you see a child's interested in pirates, you run upstairs to the store cupboard, get out everything you've got to do with pirates yeah. to provide that opportunity for learning. Yeah. But at the same time, doing so in a way that's going to develop a particular area Absolutely. that you've identified. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Um, so, I th we may be going into the same ground as we are with literacy here, but number? 
is it the sort of C above that we just talked about? Number development is, it, is, is it the same things you said about literacy applied to number? Absolutely. Um, we with number we try to deliver more an objective-led planning, whereas obviously they are at very different um, stages, um, and some children may be excelling in number that they would be doing well at year two, and you have to provide for that level. Mm -hmm. And then you have other children who are now beginning to understand the concept of, of number. When we talk about numbers, we're talking about understanding the concept of number, not just counting, one, two, three, four, five, six, yeah. seven. So mm -hmm. rote learning. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's understanding what's behind, understanding that, for example, five yeah. is, is two and three, or is one and one and one and one and until yeah. you get to five. So it's having that strong understanding, and it is actually very good to deliver all of that um, learning during the play. Mm. So you engage in whatever they are playing, and you bring the number yeah. in. I mean, it means something as well. Um, what was my daughter, who's in, who's, she's only four, so she's here at UIC, she was doing some number stuff by herself, but it was with, I can't remember what it was, but on the table, she was like, I'm taking, I think it was a piece of chocolate. I've got two, and now I'm going to put that, and I've got, I've got one left. And that was, that's real, right? And I guess that's come from play. It's, yeah. Whereas, I suppose if you start the day with chanting numbers or times table, which I suppose you could do with that age group, I and mean, that happens, doesn't it? That's not going to lead to the same understanding as a, as a real sort of context-based number or lettering system. That's exactly it. And so playing around with amounts and splitting amounts and children seeing that in visual representations and then being able to apply that to a different visual representation, they're going to learn a lot more than sitting down with a worksheet copying out numbers or yeah. you know, just, yeah, it's, it's a lot better when they're doing it through play. It's, it's interesting for them, so they're going to engage in it a lot better anyway. But it's really learning those concepts and then transferring those skills across to lots of different situations. Yeah. But we'd also take that example you just gave and we'd, we'd do an observation and we'd say, okay, well, your daughter is now interested in that and she's ready for that learning, so how can we facilitate that? that and what can we, you know, what can we give to her to in the environment to help yeah, her expand be, on that? So if I'm, you know, I'm going to risk it and say maybe you'd plan like a, a little shop or something, would you? Or yeah. would that be too, like where, where they Well, we'd probably look at her other observations that we have yeah. and her overall interests and things that she's engaging with in the room. Yeah. Say she really loves to be in the creative construction area, so maybe we can introduce something there. Yeah. Um, and how can we facilitate and extend on that yeah. learning? So, I, I mean, certainly I find that the more questions you ask about this kind of provision, the more interesting it gets, the more you realise the depth of thinking behind it. Um, so w why then is there perhaps, it's not, it's not controversial because it's also good to say that there's a, plenty of, there's a ton of research that backs this up, whether it comes out of Reggio Emilia schools in, in Italy or uh, some of the good kind of Montessori type stuff mm. that's come out from us. It's a lot of bad Montessori or non-Montessori type stuff, but uh, there's a ton of research behind it. So why is it that some people are uncomfortable with this, maybe especially in this area of the world? Because um, my understanding is that they are used to um, rote, le rote learning, rote where learning. you just recite what mm. you've been taught, but there's no understanding behind. So at the beginning, it might look like a five-year-old who can tell you times tables to whatever number, 
and a five-year-old who is representing three by writing three fingers, well, might look like the one that is um, reciting timetables knows a lot more. And we don't know the understanding behind it. It'd be very interesting to get that particular type of learner um, and, and get him to explain well, what is this that you are doing or give him objects can you do it with objects can you represent this in a different way and you usually get they just cannot do it because they have learned it by heart with no understanding I can learn a poem and recite it and I, it may sound wonderful I don't know what I'm saying because I don't understand the language and that's exactly what's happening with, with, with number or with reading, yeah. they are sight reading instead of decoding. Um, and this other child, this other child who is representing three by drawing three fingers, mm. it's actually having an understanding of what number three represents. Mm. And further down the line, they'll be a lot more successful. Yeah. I suppose we can be sympathetic about that because if you... You know, your grandparents sit in the home and your granddaughter comes in and she suddenly recites the eight times table at age four. You go, wow, that's, mm. that's amazing. But what we're saying here is actually it isn't. And that's not necessarily the way to, that we want to be teaching because it won't have the understanding behind it. Um, and also, am I right in saying that by learning that way, you're taking away all of the other opportunities that present themselves? Absolutely. And the, and the, and the risk-taking disappears as well. Yeah. Absolutely, it's absolutely gone. Mm. Often children that learn like that, as you say, just won't take any risks. They won't think outside of this is what I know, and I can't think they they just won't try and extend that learning and think of it in any other context because they don't understand, as Carlotta said, they don't understand Mm. what it means. We would see that in secondary school, interestingly enough. Um, Students who are not exposed to risk or getting things wrong, for example, if we look at Carol Dweck's work on mindset. Um, will often be the ones that have an absolute meltdown when something goes wrong. So they didn't get 95 plus percent on the maths test, meltdown. Which is why I guess through, well primary and secondary you try and develop those skills using the GIS learning skills. So all of that links to what we're doing, we're really setting the foundation for that because we can see how through school and going into, you know, their career, they really need those skills to succeed. Mm. So we want to get those in at an early age. And we've taken much of the, the observation-style work that you've done here and tried to look for opportunity mm. to implement that further at the school because I think it's something we can all do as teachers no matter what age, but also as parents, actually, isn't it? There's, there's some learning there that sit back and watch and listen first. Yeah, rather than let them of, make mistakes. Mm. Yeah. Let them try it and fail and try again. Yeah, and I think going back to what you said about... If, if what we're doing here and the way that we do our earliest practice is so good, why maybe is that, that misconception about play and what's really going on behind it? And I think partly it is just not knowing about it, not knowing all the research. Um, the three of us are sitting here as experienced earliest practitioners. However, when we first stepped into university, we wouldn't have understood it ourselves. We've learned it, you know, and, and now we can see the impact of it. We've put strategies into practice. We can see how the children progress best we've got that experience Mm -hmm. and really now we would love to just teach other people that and try and get that understanding with um, other teachers at school maybe up in secondary um, and parents and just to really see all of the good practice that goes on here and and really what is the rigour 
behind play. Yeah, and there's a ton of it. Yeah. Right. There's a ton of it, clearly, just from this little snapshot that we're getting today. I always think it's interesting that you've got this idea of like play and then the real learning. And, and somehow that those mm. two things are separate when clearly, you know, evolution itself has provided us with, with a reason why we play. You know, mm. we play too long. It's the, the most powerful way that we learn in our There's a great quote on that, actually, that um, obviously as adults we learn through research and finding things out. And Einstein has a quote that play is the best form of research because the children are interested, they're engaged, and I think that's really something to remember. So the real learning only happens through play. Yeah. Any other type of learning is yeah. not real learning if yeah. it's not happening through play. So we'll often talk about um, shallow learning versus deep learning. Mm -hmm. You know, the shallow learning is just those things that stay in the memory for a very short period of time or just wrote them without understanding behind it. Whereas what we're trying to do here is develop a, a program uh, and a set of ideas that will create deep foundations for that deeper learning, which we build on as we go through. Yeah. Okay, so if you're a parent listening to this and you want to know more, mm -hmm. this is flip to switch and like, ah, right, okay. How, how, can, how can I find out more? They can come and talk to us for a start. Yeah. Um, we'd be happy to answer any questions, um, explain what happens. Um, workshops that we, that we offer at school are, are really good. And that hones in on different areas of learning. Yeah. There's tons of stuff on the internet. If you Googled um, early years foundation stage or development matters or learning through play, yeah. there's loads of stuff out there. Um, I would say always coming and, and talking, having a talk mm. with us and then definitely researching on the internet. Obviously, the internet and, and things, there'll be things, sometimes you research for, for things and, and the information that comes up is not so so valid. So, always talking to us and then, yeah. yeah. We're also highlighting some interesting articles in our newsletters. Oh, oh that's yeah. right. Yeah. So, yeah. we've been uh, putting in interesting topics for parents to read if they want to find out more and if they want to find out more on a topic that we've put in there, they can always come and talk to yeah. us. You know, we are an open book, so we always love <laughs> parents to come and talk. And we've got a very open door policy where we are happy to have yeah. parents and people interested in learning uh, in learning more about the way we're learning here mm. um, to come in and, and, and have a walk around. Yeah, I think something I've learned along the way, been a parent of the parent home, is when the kids are at home playing, that are watching them, and rather than sort of um, projecting what I feel might be good learning or something that they should have learned in quotation marks, watch them actually just see what they've learned, talk to them about what they play, play with them. And then you're amazed usually aren't you, about what yeah. kind of language they come out with, they're talking about their friends who are playing, the kind of things that they create, the songs that they sing mm. is um, it's quite, quite special. Okay, is there anything else that you think you want to talk about that I haven't managed to uh, the only thing I think we haven't mentioned that I know is often a question is about outdoor play. Ah, great, yeah. So we've talked a lot about indoors and continuous provision indoors and the way that we teach indoors. And to answer the question quite simply is in exactly the same way, but in a bigger scale. Yeah. So again, children learn in the outdoors through um, the provision that's out there, which we've purposely planned for, need for development, linked to their interests. And then the adult's role for that is to observe the children looking at their play, their development, and then facilitate that, challenge them, 
Um, we get great risk-taking outdoors. Great problem-solving. Yeah. yeah. Lots of gross motor skills. Mm. You know, there's, um, there's research that says that for children to develop their vestibular development enough to um, progress developmentally as a whole, they need three hours of active outdoor learning a day. Vestibular. Vestibular, yes. I don't know what that is. I'm not an expert on this, but it's basically to do with fluid behind the ears and about balance. Oh, okay. So that's why children need to be hanging upside down oh, yeah. and spinning around and yeah. doing all those kind of things. Yeah. And uh, the kids who will go into the jungle school yes. and do that, which is, I know, is a favourite time of the week for many of them. Yes, we're doing lots of um, risk-taking and... Uh, uh, exploring the new environment and they're interacting with the different peers because they go with an older class or the nursery go with the older class. Um, it's all just, it's bringing all that learning to mm. another area. And, just and you see them writing, you see them reading, you yeah. see them problem solving, yeah. you'll see them climbing up the trees and saying, oh I had five people in front of me, two have gone, so now I only have three people in it's front really, of me. Yeah. Um, lots of risk taking. Yeah. We mm. take tools, yeah. where they actually use sharp tools and mm. they learn safety, they learn about personalised space and safety space. And so, I mean, if, if we could, we would probably do all of our learning outdoors. Well, <laughs> there's schools, aren't there, in Scandinavia? Yeah. Yeah. So I know that sort of, I think education, and maybe still does in certain areas of the world, has gone through a bit of a sanitised approach. Everything's got to be perfect and clean, and we'll just use these plastics, and you never go outside and touch anything dirty. And if you if you live in Sweden or Finland or Norway, they look at you like you're absolutely insane. And it's like no, get outside, get mm. dirty, interact with your environment. Um, and I know there's a growing body of schools and research and movements mm -hmm. that are really pushing this very very hard. Mm. And as a parent, it's wonderful. I'm just getting out there. And the enjoyment on their faces yeah. is just incredible. And you really see that progress from the start of the year when they're, you know, they don't want to touch this and they don't want to get in the stream and they don't want to be cold and wet to the end of the year when they're splashing the teacher in the river and having a little mud fights. And, yeah, it's incredible. And that carries through. 100% mm. that carries through to camps, to trips, to home life in the park, to whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. Great. I think we'll probably wrap it up. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And good chat. I've learned that. Thank um, you. And if you've got any questions, we can ring up EYC. You can send an email in. You can drop in and see these guys. Uh, you can have a little research on the internet. There's the newsletters. We have workshops. So the, the general message really is here. Find out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Out find out more. And then I think um, I'm rethink that you'll, you know, you'll be impressed with what you see. And, and, and it will raise more questions and interesting things for you, whether you're a parent or a teacher. All right, I'm going to stop rambling. I'm done. Thank you, yeah. Thank you. Great, thank you so much. Have a great evening.